Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Eyes of the Lies. My name is John. That's Ian. It is me. Hello. Hello. Uh, we are actually uh, recording this uh, February 27th, so all those of you in March are in the future. Do Yay. Anyway. <laughs> but so the reason you're, why... You're listening to this on Wednesday, most likely, the yes. March 6th. That is That is ideal if you're listening to a day of, but... It's for a special occasion because we have a guest on the show. We're really excited. Member of the Magic Coverage team uh, and new member of the newly formed uh, Commander Advisory Group, Adam Staborski is joining us. Adam, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. So we don't really have any eyes in the community because, again, we haven't seen what's going to happen this upcoming weekend with uh, Magic Fest LA, which is obviously going to be an interesting experiment, as we talked about in last week's episode. But it's uh, going to be modern, so I'm looking forward to it because you know, spice. Adam, how do you, f- yeah, Adam, how do you feel about the experiment going on with uh, Magic Fest LA? I mean, I guess the question is, what, what do you mean by experiment? It sounds like it's an, an awesome weekend with live video coverage, a modern tournament, uh, a popper PTQ. Like, it just kind of hits all the really cool stuff that you want to see at a big Magic convention. That is correct. So, I, I was mainly we were mainly talking about the the chat decision, but. At the same time, that's a whole. Hey, I'm, I'm geared up and re- I'm geared up and ready to go with my band hammer. So, and uh, <laughs> they've actually even since yesterday when we recorded our previous episode for this week, where we t- I talked a little bit about it, we've already gained at least five new mods that weren't in the group before. So we're ready to go. We'll get more people on that. But enough about that. Let's talk about yes. Adam. So Adam, everyone has their magic origin story. So how did you get into magic? Uh, magic started for me like a lot of kids in the 90s, I think. Like it was, uh, you know, middle school lunchroom, right? Uh, I had a buddy who, who was taught magic by some other buddy or some other friend or some other place, and he taught me. And I got hooked and, and learned to fear. Uh, deck was? Giant Manus. Uh, he had a lot of Mirage and Ice Age cards, and Giant Manus was just unbeatable. It was, it was too tough. It could block my, my flyers. It was just, just unreasonable. <laughs> Gotta love the old cards and look at them nowadays. You're like, oh, yeah, I can see why it was so powerful back then. I mean, it was literally just a different name for Giant Spider. I didn't know Giant Spider existed. It was just Giant Mantis. Ooh. Yeah, right. So um, now, have you in your Magic career ever had like the typical Magic player lapse where, you know, you go away from the game for a couple years and then come back at all? Yeah. Yeah. the The first product I actually purchased was a Tempest tournament pack or started uh, tournament pack they were called um magic has a lot of products over the years and i remember reading through that booklet like so many times and all the characters and kind of the whole weatherlight story um the booklet like started falling apart because i just read it so much um but i actually got out of magic right around uh the end of urza saga um and kind of kept kept an eye on it didn't really get back into it um until i was in college when uh, uh kamigawa was like just coming to the forebear and I haven't left it since. Nice. So you actually like when you were mentioning Tempest, I'm like, yeah, that's about when I started playing. And then he said he got out right after the Urza block. I'm like, yeah, that's when I got out of playing. But you jumped <laughs> back into the game a little bit before us. John and I both came back right around the end of uh, the RTR block. That was a good time. Yeah. Pretty good time. It was time, a very but, good time. But we're, you're here again. You've been here for, I don't even I don't even remember when Kamigawa came out, but off the top of my head, that, but is that twenty years? No, not no, like that was years? Kamigawa was like mid two thousands. Fifteen years. Yeah, it was, it was a long, 
feels like a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, Who counts? (laughs) So anyway, but yeah, so you're here. Great. And still with the community. Um, So when did you like actually start getting into content creation with that kind of stuff? When, when I took a job uh, in the DC area, I was looking for some new friends, some new things to do. And one of the things I knew to do was magic. And my uh, wife let it slip that there was uh, a comic book gaming magic store like 10 minutes from where we lived, where her brother used to go when he was played magic in high school. And so I went over there and I was like a random Tuesday night and I'm like, hey, where's all the magic? And, you know, typical store owner kind of just deadpans. He's like, you, you need to come back on Thursday. Uh, and so I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so I come back on Thursday and there was about 50 or 60 people. Uh, just playing casual magic. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, Dream Wizards in Rockville, Maryland, one of the biggest stores in the region. Uh, they were the tournament organizer for the regional pre-releases when, when those were still kind of a regionalized thing. Uh, would would run a Grand Prix. Um, really big store. Uh, it was really awesome to get to meet the, the magic community. It's where connected with uh, a lot of the really great Maryland area players from, you know, Seth Manfield, Alex Mazelton, that kind of like competitive group uh jarvis you all those all those folks but also connected to a lot of amazing kind of casual players that nobody would know their name but they they made all the difference in the world for me getting back into the game now a lot of your content is in that casual realm being on the commander advisory group also being well known for your popper cube did you ever take a step in that competitive direction any and if so how long did that last yeah i've dabbled a couple times i found i don't quite have the um, countenance for competitive play uh, I kind of get frustrated a little, little too easily, which is uh, something I think um, the worst kind of competitive players can maybe relate to a little bit. Uh, well, I'm, I'm there with you. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but I, but I've, uh, you know, I tried a couple things. You know, I tried, I tried Legacy when, when Junk was a deck, like Terravor on the sideboard. Uh, you know, the full, the full Monty. You know, uh, well, years before Abzan. Um, and I played in one tournament, um, and, and someone was very, very upset when, uh, you know, when I was, when I was, uh, when I went to Riffle Shuffle, their high tide deck, uh, they, they, they were, they, they were not very happy about that. Um, so I got very confused because I'm like, well, how am I supposed to randomize this sufficiently? That's kind of my job here. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, like the, the, ma- the mass shuffle wasn't really like a thing or anything. Yeah, it's like I mean, I didn't feel comfortable with it. I I wanted to riffle. Uh, oh yeah. It's, it's, oh, <laughs> so God. so yeah, I, I figured that out. Um, I also spent some time uh, playing a little bit of standard uh, when like uh, five color was a thing towards the end of uh, Lorwyn Shadowmore era. I had a black red burn deck and and um, had a lot of fun with that. Uh, you can you can't change the target of cruel, cruel ultimatum with ricochet because this is target opponent, but your copy oh, will resolve first. <laughs> so that was my that was my tech, and that was a lot of fun when uh, when I got to when I got to hit somebody's cruel ultimatum and then use my other like my remaining two mana to cast two burn spells to kill them before theirs would resolve. Uh, oh was my like, god, that is beautiful. Yeah, it was it was fun, um, but uh, but I never really got into the F and M scene, and then. Um, Around the time of Dragons of Tarkir, uh, Fate Reforged, um, I played, uh, I would go Tuesday nights to the competitive draft group, and that's where a lot of the Maryland area pros uh, would get together and competitive draft at Dream Wizards. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun because I would, I would, I would go a consistent 2-1 every week. Uh, pretty, you know, I was, I, you know, I thought it was like, okay, like, wow, it's, you know, th- these, these guys are pretty good. And then Seth Manfield, you know, 
top eight at a bunch of pro tours and won a world championship and Jervis U won a Grand Prix and Alex Mazelton just top eight at a pro tour. So that two one kind of gets a little bit better every couple of months. And I kind of like that. You're just like, Oh, cool. Upgrade. <laughs> Upgrade. Yeah. Keep going up. That's great though. Um, so with, you mentioned like draft, you mentioned you play a little bit of like construct and stuff like that. Commander wise. how did you get into that? Like, starting off they did like was that something at the store that was a thing or yeah so that? so what happened was was kelly diggs uh was writer for serious fun at the time and he wrote this article about elder dragon highlander and all of us casual people on thursday night read this article and we were like where has this been all of our lives? I want to play with all these cards. I want to have a cool dragon for a commander. So we started putting together these like very, um, very 2008-ish commander decks, right? Like you used an actual dragon. You It costed like six or ten mana. It was fine, like whatever. And you just played kind of your favorite stuff. And then Shards of Alara came out and it was like, Oh, cool. I can play like, uh, yeah, I made that. I remember my first commander deck I really put together instead of just borrowing from people who had more cards than me at the time was Crush the Bloodbraided. And that was like my very first commander. And it was all steal your stuff, sacrifice it, put a bunch of counters on, on Crush and just like punch somebody really hard. And it sounds like very simplistic and, and, you know, maybe, maybe naive to kind of have that as a plan in commander today. But back then it was, you know, it was just all new to everyone. It was just a ton of fun. And it just kind of took off like wildfire, like it did in casual groups and judge communities all over the world. So if Crush was your first commander, who's your favorite commander? My favorite commander for the longest time was Reese the Redeemed, because uh, I had a really tuned deck with Reese. Uh, I really like the idea of being able to use my mana every turn. I think mana efficiency is a really powerful asset in multiplayer, and you can cast your commander on turn one you can't get more efficient than that. Like literally it's just not possible. So uh, I had a lot of fun with, with um, Reese, but um, my favorite commander is for is a uh, Farika God of affliction. And I've had this green black deck that is kind of creature heavy, kind of mid rangey grindy. Uh, it's got some, it's got some cool twists in it. It's got some ways to kind of pop off and end the game unexpectedly. And it's, it's been a ton of fun to play. I've had it since, uh, since she came out. Uh, I built it for the pro tour in, in San Diego, I think, Pro Tour Journey in the Knicks. No, it was Atlanta. Uh, it, was, it was in Atlanta. Um, but, I, but I've had her together ever since and had a ton of fun looking for new black and green cards every set. So, you, so you're that kind of player where you're not looking to like jump around to what the new flavor of the week is. You're like, I've got my commander. What fits in this strategy? Well, I do build a lot of different decks. I do mix up my other decks well, yeah. uh, I, I mean just, i, I just, just I, specifically though oh yeah yeah no uh black green for life let's go <laughs> the rock old so reliable the grind is real the, the grind is very real with that deck my my favorite card in that deck is yavamaya granger it does everything i want it gets a land on the battlefield and it puts itself in the graveyard and i don't have to do anything it's perfect oh, oh yeah. lord so um Another thing that I love about Commander is that there, everyone has that one play that you always remember, and your friends will groan about it, you know, at the time. But what what's one of your most memorable plays for any of your decks? The most, I think, the most memorable play I I've made is that I that I remember is when I played a kicked Red of Replication on Sylvan Primordial, and immediately oh, no. discovered why this why it was it was about to be banned. Uh, it, I, I had no more forest in my deck. 
uh, and and nobody really else had anything relevant left to for for mana resources either. Um, the most memorable play I've seen played, not necessarily against me, but I've seen played in a game, is very famously when uh, Eric Klug was using uh, Hidetsugu and was going to annihilate everybody for like 30-some damage, and Sheldon Menery played uh, the red-white Reflect Damage card. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Deflect, Deflect Palm? No, 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 no. This is this is an older one where it just no. says all the damage that would be done is instead dealt to the owner from like target permanent. Uh, oh, is this one of the Boros cards? Yeah, it's like a very the original Ravnica. No, it's older than that. It's um, it, it's it's a it's Sheldon's story, and he's written about it before. Um, but yeah, it, just like Eric, just like instead of burninating you know everybody out of most of their life, just self-immolated in the most spectacular way he did not expect at all. Uh, right from the grandfather of of Commander himself. So that. Being in that game and witnessing that, like at at a at Gen Con, is just something I will never forget. It was just incredible, like once in a once in a commander lifetime kind of kind of play, and I and I got to be in the game when it happened. The, the one that oh. just sits crystallized in the memory. It's yeah, the one that I always go back to is I was playing a Mizzix deck, and I had a I was playing in a six person pod, and I had a Metallurgic Summonings, and I cast Expropriate. And I had one person say, take my thing, and everyone else said, take an extra turn. So I took my friend's um, Berserker's Onslaught from Dragons of Tarkir, the three red-red enchantment where all your creatures, where all your attacking creatures gain double strike. Oh, that was that was very, very rude. And it took like five turns in a row. It was it was disgusting. I, I don't have one. <laughs> Besides just like, I haven't played a ton of Commander. It's not really, I don't, I don't have a lot of play groups, so I don't have that, that memorable play for me. But yeah. So this advisory group for the commander thing, have you guys met yet? Or like what's it's like what what's kind of the background bit for that for people who might not be aware of it? I think um I think if you link to Sheldon's article, I think it does a really good job kind of introducing who everyone is and, and what it's for. It's you know, pretty straightforward, you know, hey, let's you know, the goal is just to expand the sphere of information, influence, uh, and and perspective of the commander format. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's uh, incorrect to say Commander is among the most popular formats in 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 Magic. Just period. So the idea that just you know a, a tiny handful of people could you know be the perfect stewards of that, I think, is something that you know everyone recognizes. You know, could could be improved on. And the Commander Advisory Group is one of the one of the ways to improve on that. Uh, you know, pulling in pulling in people who have played a long time who have very different play experiences who have a wider range of perspectives, ideas, circles, communities, input, feedback, and being able to help provide the, the rules committee, you know, some, some additional insight and direction, I think will, you know, help, help continue the, the stewardship of the format um, to be successful. You know, commander is awesome. And to say something commander is broken, I think is a, you know, a little bit of a Twitter hyperbole kind of thing. And it's very popular to, to, to point out stuff like that. But the fact that the, format is so popular and so awesome really leans from the community that's come up around it and oh, yeah. pulling in pulling in more people for that just makes a ton of sense oh yeah john and i like when that got announced we were like yes it's because it's just like you mentioned it's always great to have a fresh outside look coming in where it's like you might you might think you're doing good but you get the blinders on and to have that kind of like course correction like and then pop back over that way there you go and i'm happy that you and all the rest of the group are there to help them out with that. I'm I'm among some amazing amazing folks, and it's it's a pretty humbling to to be there too. 
I mean, you, you did the work, you put in the work and the time and, you know, it's nice to get recognized for that for sure. So as far as kind of staying on the same theme, do you guys know how it's going to work? Is it going to be each person individually kind of talks with Sheldon or the group? Or are you guys going to meet up or like kind of like have a group thread going on and chatting about like what cards that you're considering looking at? Or do you have, are there any sort of formalized things going on with it? Or is it just more of a, hey, this is a card that I think is proving problematic? I mean, I think there will be more kind of public clarity as things get ironed out. Um, honestly, it's a very fluid, organic group at the moment. Um, we were talking with the rules committee. Um, obviously, it was just a Mythic Championship Cleveland where Toby Elliott and Sheldon Mennery, who are on the rules committee, were there. And, and we had some cool conversations. But uh, there's some space, you know, we have some space where we can kind of collaborate and discuss together. And we're already exchanging ideas and kind of bringing up things that we're hearing and feeling out. Um it's it's it really is just an extension of that conversation where we have the opportunity to distill the the kind of feedback the kind of things that we observe and hear and feel in a way where you know we can we can provide it to other folks who can kind of reflect on that and add to or or react to it um, which is great so there's so there's intra conversation among the commander advisory group but also uh, we're we're talking with the rules committee and just having the opportunity to provide that information and give them give them that insight that that they need all right um what are you excited about for this upcoming year's commander product is there anything that you're looking forward to maybe seeing in this upcoming product or are you just kind of hopeful that it's new and exciting things for the format i i love the the theme that they've kind of been on the past couple years is looking at things that commander doesn't have but could use you know, answering different, you know, having having different commanders for different themes or, or different combinations of colors that don't exist, uh, like the Esper colored zombie. You know, the things where folks have wanted to kind of take the chocolate and the peanut butter that they have already in Magic, but the but they it requires the commander to kind of be that binder to pull it together. That's um, that's what I'm excited for most. It's just the things that people already love to do. Now they get an exemplar to execute that with. Uh, I, I think Commander reflects a lot of magic where, you know, the, the choice and the personality and the personalization, um, you know, sleeves and accessories, there's there are a million different ways to kind of customize and represent yourself with the game. And I think Commander kind of takes that to a peak where you, you want a Commander that exemplifies the thing that you want to do and you want to build the deck that exemplifies how you, how you want to express that. Um, and seeing Commanders that let people do that and get them excited to, to to play in the ways they already want to play i think is really cool so so from that i'm just getting the the vibe that when they started moving away from like all right we've got the wedge colors we've got you know the allied pairs we've got the enemy pairs and oh no what we're going to do that was just like really choice to be like let's just dive into the archetypal like we could have like four of the same color but you know hey we have these cool niche archetypes now getting met yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I think there's things that people really like to do um, that they don't have a, they don't have a commander that helps them do that or points them and says, hey, you can actually take this thing to to commander. Um, you know, a lot of the enchantment stuff that came in, I think, the last round of decks and the different flavors of commander that they provided to do that. Like, hey, do you love putting auras on stuff? Do you love just having all these enchantments out? Um, the different the different ways that people like to play with enchantments, they got to play with that space, and that's kind of what. That, that's what I mean more more specifically. Yeah. Because um, I'd be happy if they did, you know, if they do monocolor decks again, but they, they focused on maybe a deck that leaned into the kind of like the secondary and tertiary keywords that 
that a, that a color has. Like, green has haste. Like, that's a thing green gets to have. So what if there was a green deck that was, instead of more about ramp, it was more about, like, a creature strategy, and it had a bunch of haste creatures and things like that. Like, I would love to see the them them use the opportunity for, for take any supplemental product, but to play with the spaces that they don't get to play with in ways that they that they might otherwise be prevented for to in like, like a standard release. Yeah, like the tertiary keyword kind of thing. Yeah, where it's like that was pretty cool. Like some I know we had like you just mentioned like Estrid and stuff like that. Planeswalkers as commanders is that something you'd like to see maybe more of? I'm I'm not a big fan of the Planeswalker as commander. Uh, <laughs> I think um, just from personal Nothing experience, like they they lend themselves to a very different type of experience. You know, when you play a creature, it's a pretty fragile resource in commander yeah. and 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 most most formats generally. While planeswalkers have the obvious, I get to attack them. Playing a planeswalker that your opponents attack takes takes basically gives you free life. Right? They can't attack you. They've got to attack your planeswalker. Uh, yeah. it, it baits them into attacking you, right? If it's disadvantageous for them to attack, and they might they might expend more resources than they otherwise would keeping up with you to take the commander out. There's a lot of strategic value, I think, in using a planeswalker as commander. And not every planeswalker as commander is is broken or, or, or bad. And I don't think you should undo the ones that are already out there. But I just think, broadly speaking, uh, especially if you're going to ask me, like, do you think planeswalkers should be commanders? This kind of answers your question. I think I think commander is great as a format when you have an actual creature that is going to do creature things in the game. I, I've been, always been a, of a fan of if you're going to make a, if you want to make planeswalkers commanders, you have to consider the fact that some of them, like you said, they're harder to interact with. That said, if I were if if I were given the power, I think I would make every Gideon able to be a commander because he has to, he turns into a creature and attacks. But I agree, like I, there's no reason that Jace the Mind Sculptor or Teferi should be able to be your commander. I mean, in, in canon, Teferi had a big old Planeswalker duel with Bolas, so you know he is a fighter. That is true. Yeah. So, so speaking of like the commander <laughs> ancillary products and stuff like that, you you do get some of the preview cards from time to time with the various sources you write for. And I just wanted to give like a shout out and let, like tell you, I got beat by one of your commander card or preview cards in legacy, like three, four weeks ago. It was the Yuriko, the tiger shadow, the uh, ninjutsu commander that she, uh, so Demir Delver deck basically was running four of her to just kind of like jump right out and get you. And, uh, yeah, getting flipped over with a uh, Gurmag Angler kind of hurts. <laughs> yeah, Legacy is a weird format. So they, they ninjutsued in Yuriko. Uh, for those who don't know, Yuriko Tiger Shadow is one blue, black, one three, legendary hu- creature human ninja with commander ninjutsu, which we don't even care about right now. But it's blue and a black for that. When a ninja you control deals combat damage to a player, reveal the top card of your library and put that card into your hand. Each opponent loses life equal to that card's converted mana cost. Well, my opponent had three mana up. And they brainstorm, and I'm like, all right, yeah, brainstorm's good. And they put a couple cards on top, and then they go, uh, Ninjutsu Yuriko, and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> and he's like, uh, reveal, <laughs> reveal Gurmang Angler, hit you for seven. But yeah, they had the, uh, the one of the other blue-black split cards that also is seven CMC. So... They could easily just be like, all right, nug you for seven, nug you for seven to the dome, and you're just like, wait, just happened, done. But yeah, just wanted to let you know that some of your commander cards are actually decent in really weird niche situations in even other formats as well. 
I mean, I mean, it almost sounds like the question should be, is there anything Brainstorm can't do in Legacy? Uh, that's also true. It's, oh god, that card is just such a... <laughs> that's a that's a whole discussion for a whole other day. <laughs> as, as long as Wizards doesn't accidentally make another true name nemesis, I think we'll all be fine. <laughs> also a commander now, card. Other, also a command, commander card, heavy air quotes. Uh, another thing that you are very well known for is your popper cube. Um, and just real quick, what what is a cube, and then why did you choose to build this popper cube? So a cube, you know, for anyone who, who isn't familiar with a cube or is, or is newer to Magic, is basically a custom draft set made from existing Magic the Gathering cards. So a typical cube will take 360 or 420, 550 kind of cards, randomize, bounce them along the colors and archetypes and kind of kind of shape how how the, the decks should kind of look and what, what mana resources and, and lands and other things that go into the cube. Basically, you construct a magic set using all these cards, then you randomize in the packs and draft them. Uh, so I made a popper cube, um, and, and popper's kind of in air quotes. It's, it's not strictly popper popper. Um, I can get into that a little bit later, but um, I made a popper cube, an all-commons cube, because when I was at Dream Wizards, there was a powered cube, uh, there was Eric Klug's Common Uncommon Cube, which was amazing, and I wanted to have a cube that wasn't just a worse version of what somebody else already at the store already had. So I, being a fan of commons and being a fan of multicolor, I tried to make a multicolor commons cube, and that was you know around the time of Shards of Alara, so there was no Return of Ravnica block, no Constarch here, a whole bunch of basic kind of things were missing, uh, and... It didn't quite work out, but after uh, kind of a come-to-cube-Jesus moment with Eric Klug, we went through the cube and kind of put it on the path that it's on today. So I've actually gotten a chance to play this cube at uh, PAX Unplugged back in like December, and my god, is it gorgeous. So Adam has actually... It's all foiled out, correct? Yeah, I, foiled I, out? It, yeah. As I, foiled I, out I, as I, it can be, right? Yep, old school, you know, the original foil printing, uh, foil judge bolt couple other couple other gems like that um but basically i keep it keep it maintained and really pretty and yeah this so i know when i was drafting it um i knew the tendencies potentially of some other players like mentioning blue and i was like oh, i first picked a, a mold drifter and then i'm like oh no i can't i can't stay in this i ended up with like green white tokens that actually did pretty decently but the i really enjoyed it because it it's amazing how even I know we talk about popper format occasionally sometimes where it's like it's legacy light and it feels like it. There is some crazy stuff you can do with your cube. Uh, is there anything in like particular that you aim for in terms of balance wise with that though to make sure nothing's too crazy? You know, you, you can't like break out storm or anything like that, right? Yeah, there's there's no storm deck. Um, Delver Secrets isn't in the cube. Um, it, it could be. It would be I think a, a fine card for like a blue red kind of tempo spells heavy deck. Um, so what I've done for balance is there's kind of the archetypical cube design, which is let's take the most powerful cards and kind of put them together. And that's your typical kind of powered cube or rare cube where you're just jamming really, really powerful stuff. And it's a lot of fun. Um, and I wanted a different experience. That's kind of the core of why I had an all commons cube to begin with is like, I'm never, ever going to have a planeswalker in my cube. That's just not going to happen. Um, unless something utterly bizarre happens in the, in the future, um, but the, the goal that I look for development is based on kind of feedback and keeping, keeping real games of magic happening. Um, 
you know, for a long time, the you know, in the original Pass of the Cube, there was stuff like Rolling Thunder and Fireball, Sprout Swarm, some incredibly broken limited cards uh, that were just, you know, would just end a game effectively. And so over the over time, I've kind of pared back on those or taken them out of the cube and really shaped um, an archetype first focus where every color pair kind of has an identity and a thing it can do. And then within that, I look at, you know, I particularly look for cards that can go into multiple decks. And I also look for look for cards that are similar in effect. So I create redundancy, just like if you're drafting a regular set of magic and you expect kind of multiple copies of kind of key commons, you're going to see multiple kinds of similar effects that are a little bit redundant. So you can get the kind of base that you need to have in, in a deck, you'll, you'll be able to get removal, you'll be able to get some efficient creatures, but if you're, say, blue-green, you'll also be able to get a couple things that are really best in that archetype. Uh, and it's it's a lot of fun to kind of identify an open archetype and get to draft kind of like a uh, around that um, experience. But you're not limited to that. There's a lot of great mana fixing in all the, the common inner battlefield dual lands, and I've seen, like, Esper bouncing and Sultai value and tempo. Like, I, I, I had a a 15 land burn red white burn deck and i could not beat a salt eye deck that was stuck on three lands for like seven turns <laughs> just every card they played was so much value and once they got cavern harpy online i just could not get out from under it uh so you're not you're not necessarily limited to the archetypes but very similar to to kind of what i feel as a what players reflect on as a great limited environment, there's great obvious things to do and you've got the, the tools to do that. So new players end up with a, with a deck that's pretty close in power to some of the kind of edge case and kind of synergy decks that some of the other players will put together. Um, and it's a lot of fun to kind of see everybody feel like they have a, a good chance at playing a game of Magic. So what has been the biggest performer from Guilds of Ravnica and Ravnica Allegiance for the Popper Cube? Biggest performer. So uh, I need to do I need to do some more drafts with the the cube with uh, the latest update to to get a sense of what uh, what the cube what the update's going to look like and 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 how it actually performs differently. Um, getting some great Simic commons certainly helps a lot. You know, Growth Spiral is constructed playable right now. Uh, so oh, geez, I forgot that's a common. <laughs> it's a common. That was an <laughs> I think honestly, um, Ultimate Masters did a lot to really help bump some of the some of the favorite archetypes of players. You know, Fire and Ice is now a common. Demir Guildmage is now a common, and I think um, I, I think a lot of the great multicolor, you know, having having like the fifth or sixth multicolor block slash set in Magic has finally helped multicolor have enough density that all of the multicolor multicolor cards feel pretty strong. Um, there's still some outliers, you know, I think black, green, I think white, red could use just a little bit more help, but overall, yeah, um, shoring, much. yeah, yeah. Overall shoring up multicolor, I'm actually able to increase, uh, the, the number of multicolor cards from five to six for each pair in my cube. And that's something I've, I've wanted to do for a while, but just there wasn't enough card density to, to consider it. And now there was. So I get to I get to move the cube just a little bit back closer to the uh, multicolor roots that it had just ever so slightly, um, and I think uh, multicolor cards because they generally have a much better rate than colorless cards. You know, I cut ten colorless cards, I added ten multicolor cards. It should help the cube feel a little bit more powerful too. 
So kind of on that same vein, and you might you mentioned this a little bit when you're looking at, you know, talking about redundancy and whatnot. What, what are you looking for when a new set comes out? Like when War of the Spark comes out here in a couple of months, when we get Commander 2020 coming out at the end uh, or 2019 at the end of the year, what are the what are you looking for in a common to add to the cube? Kind of the three big things I look for are the first is novel effects. Have they put something at common that they that they've only put it like on common or rare before? Um, you'll see this a lot with downshifted cards in like Masters editions, right? Like Demir Guildmage, just unbounded card draw uh, is not something that's really been at common on a creature. Um, you know, those kind of effects are usually pretty strong, and if they're costed aggressively or they're pushed in a, in a card, you know, Imperious Oligarch is a good example of a pushed common, right? It's keyword soup. There's like, you know, it's it's Afterlife One. It's it's Vigilance. It's a two drop with two power. Um, you know, those kind of cards that have a have a unique, powerful effect um, are are kind of the first stop. the The second are new new twists on kind of existing powerful cards. So, Skewer the Critics is a great example of a twist on Lightning Bolt. Heads up, it's pretty fair. Sorcery speed, three mana, open fire is not going to be very exciting. But suddenly, when you think about it in the context of a, hey, am I drafting an aggressive deck? Suddenly, Skewer the Critics looks much better. If I'm playing a control deck and I just want the flexibility. You know, if I've got Pestilence where I can pay one black mana, you know, wipe out some small fries, and then throw out a, a Skewer the Critics to deal with something with four toughness, you know, the, the, the ability to have a card have flexible modes or, or be a, a, a novel twist that plays a little bit better then, you know, similar versions of cards already in the cube is pretty great. Uh, and then the third is finally just strict upgrades, right? Like, uh, Titanic Brawl is just better than Pounce. Like, it does the same thing, but you sp- you spend Prey Upon mana if your creature happens to have a plus one plus one counter on it. There's a couple ways to get plus one plus one counters on cards in the cube. Most of them are in green or colorless, so, you know, it just seems like an easy, easy kind of upgrade to go, yeah, I'll, I'll take a card and just replace it with just a better version they gave me. Thanks, Wizards. Yeah, I know. Like one of the things I actually drafted when I was pulling out all the the green white tokens strategy is Sign of the Wild, which was downshifted from a rare to a common in Modern Masters 2015. And that like normally in a vacuum, that card's like all right, whatever. But like it performed decently in that particular archetype if you go wide. So, yeah, like, that yeah. kind of that kind of downshift is something you look for too, right? Yeah, three mana, three mana, seven seven power creatures are are okay, I think, in Magic history. Now, I, I would probably be correct in assuming, because I haven't checked your list in a while, that you have put foil in since it was downshifted in Ultimate Masters. I did. I looked at it. Uh, but here's here's the tricky bit. When you're looking at just all commons, you actually end up with fewer two-for-ones and ways to generate card advantage. So foil is really, really good in, in Popper right now because you get to play it alongside Gush and both of those cards play really well alongside Delver of Secrets. That's kind of my very high-level take and, and understanding. So correct me if I'm wrong, but all those oh, cards no, are good together, right? Oh, no, you're, you're yes. spot on. Those yeah. cards are ridiculous together. <laughs> so, But in my cube, you're actually throwing away two cards plus spending a card to counter one. And so the question that, that I would ask myself is, what? how often is that going to be the correct kind of trade? So while foil is really, you know, it, it's common force of will, it, it really is. There's just no other effect like that at common. Um, ultimately, this is actually just not that great in the cube where you don't have the density of you must answer or you must stay ahead threats. Uh, I also don't run gush in the cube, so you can't 
do kind of like the one-two combo and draft them together. And even if you do, then, you know, I, I once did an experiment going, well, why did I cut Brainstorm from the cube, right? Like we, we talked about earlier, like, is there anything Brainstorm can't do in Legacy? Well, in Legacy, it, it makes a ton of sense. You've got fetch lands, you've got ways to shuffle your library regularly, but in a popper cube, you're really not shuffling your library at all, to be honest. Uh, maybe the ramp deck, maybe if you have an evolving wild somewhere, but the, the statistical, you know, the, the, the hypergeometric statistics on will you have the certain cards you draft in a certain order in your deck in a certain way just is pretty low. And so it's hard to justify having kind of one, two card combos like that, or assuming that a player is going to have all of those cards when really the, the odds just aren't there. So, so foil is not in the cube and it's probably not going to be in there. It's just not very good. Yeah, anybody who's yeah. drafted one of the master sets um, that have brainstorm and foil in it obviously knows that as as well. Like you, you, you hit on it perfectly. Like even in the sets that Wizards has built, you know the master sets usually want one brainstorm. You're like, oh, I got like four. End up with four brainstorms. I have a play set. It's like, yeah, you're only going to play one of them. If that, it's a weak card. But I actually have a legacy ish cube, and I've been considering cutting brainstorm for a while because it just. I just, I'm just never impressed with it whenever I see it, but that's just me. Honestly, that's those are the exact kind of cards you should cut. Um, the best, the best card, the best one mana um, cantrip I found for cubes is preordained because you, for one mana, you get to scry two, and then you choose to draw a card. So you get to dig the th- as as far as three cards deep, uh, spending one mana, which is what you actually want to do. Oh yeah, hundred percent. It's. Imp- I don't yeah. know. Brainstorm is just has this allure because of Legacy, where everyone's like, "Oh, Brainstorm," and it's just. And you, and you mentioned pre- you mentioned preordain being the more powerful of the one mana things. Where even like Ponder is like, "Okay, cool. You look at three. If you shuffle it away, you only get one, and you know nothing else." So. Yeah, and and, and I like Ponder. Um, I yeah, I, I cut it a cut it a long time ago. I used to have it in there. I have like a signed foil Ponder. I, I've got a Mercadian Mask foil Brainstorm just kind of hanging out in my. Maybe this will come back to the cube someday. Binder, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's it's interesting to see what's what cards are kind of hanging out over there versus what's in the cube sometimes. But I mean, you've right. you've intentionally angled it just so you get the best play experience, and that kind of thing is great. Having you know you taking all the feedback and even evaluating it yourself. Like I know after we did our draft, you came up to me and we're just like, Hey, what'd you think? And that kind of like instant feedback, I'm sure is very helpful for you. It is. And, and I'm open to all sorts of feedback. You know, I've gotten feedback where it's like, you need the signets and bounce lands in here, which is a whole different podcast of conversation <laughs> to kind of talk about. And as a little bit of an in joke, but, um, but honestly, the, the range of feedback, um, the one thing that I discovered is that the more I shifted away from let's just have a collection of the most powerful and broken commons I can find into let's have an intentful draft experience that is still flexible for experienced drafters and still provides a lot of replay value, but really does. I can give a one minute rundown on the archetypes before everybody drafts. And, and I've seen players who are playing like literally their third, third or fourth game of magic ever end up drafting a deck and having a great experience because they're they're able to keep up and they're able to play a game. Being able to keep that gap between those who have a, a ton of experience and are really good drafters, which I wouldn't put myself at, and people who are brand new to the game, which I, you know, I put myself above that, the gap between is much narrower than with other cubes, and I think that it's been much more consistent positive feedback as I've kept that narrow. So, If you're looking to build a cube, seriously look into Adam's list. It's a very very fun draft experience yeah so uh, kind of the third thing that we were talking about 
talking talking about talking about that's a phrase I never thought I'd say was um, you've been involved in magic coverage for a considerable amount of time. When did you start doing covering events for for or large magic events? I should say uh, the the first tournament I ever covered for Wizards of the Coast was Nationals 2010. And, um, you know, to be, to be honest, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't ready at that time. I did not do a very good job. Um, I don't, you know, I learned a lot at that show. Uh, and so my, my next show was actually in 2013. So you can kind of see that there's a bit of a gap (laughs) as, as I leveled up some skills and, and, uh, you know, was able to have a second opportunity to, to go back out. Um, but ultimately, um, 2013 kind of forward, I, I began covering magic some years. I've done a, t- uh, a lot. I think I did 26 shows or 24 shows in 20, 2015. Uh, I did one in 2016. Um, so, so it's kind of been all over the place. Um, but it's been, it's been a ton of fun to get to see, um, you know, amazing players that I know who started in high school playing at the local, you know, Grand Prix in DC all the way up and now they're you know playing on a team series team and and they've had multiple grand prix top eights and and that little slice of history uh that that i've gotten to see um you know has been has been awesome to watch unfold and like you mentioned just one of the guys you played with back in the day just top eighted the at mythic championship dollar for the pro tour bin there we go (laughs) so you probably have I don't know if this is this is accurate, but do you have a fa- an event that you had the most fun covering? That was your favorite event to cover, whether it was like one, whether it was like you know this specific pro tour or this specific GP. Just was there one in particular that really sticks out to you? There, there was a world championship at PAX. I want to say in 2015, and it was it was absolutely hands down. I think one of my favorite shows. Uh, Wizards yes, brought in a lot of amazing people. That you know, I got to you know, I got to brush shoulders with and get to have fun, fun around, get to play magic with. Uh, Seth Manfield won, and again, I knew Seth from from local. I had been drafting with him months earlier, and I knew he was a new dad. And just seeing him, seeing him win, and kind of that emotional uh, experience for him, uh, getting to interview him, and it's when I actually you know learned that his father was a bridge champion. Uh, and had passed away, you know, when he was younger and, and just kind of seeing like this legacy where, you know, you know, I, I remember, I remember editing it, um, sprinting, sprinting back to, to the editor and adding uh, an addendum. I think the, I think the phrase was in like his father before him, you know, you know, Seth Manfield became champion of the game he loves. Um, that, that story being there for that, for that moment to unfold was just unforgettable. It was really, really cool. Plus, there was an off day where I just got to hang out at PAX and have fun, and it was just like the most chill, relaxed, you know, world championship ever. Yeah, I, I missed that one. I was there for the year after 2016's uh, championship at PAX. But yeah, that the just getting to be able to see if like somebody you knew, like that had to be just really cool. And then, like you said, getting that edge case that you just got the last minute, like that ring, extra wrinkle was kind of cool in any kind of writer at all loves that little kicking up yeah we need the salt bay gif <laughs> there we go. Just, bam the, the facts bay facts bay just facts bay over the elbow um <laughs> there you go so, um now you've written for tcg player you've written for cool stuff inc you've written for the mothership um do you have any advice for someone who is an aspiring writer for content whether it be for magic or for some other hobby or other game What's what's your best advice for trying to get picked up by a major outlet? 
you know, it's um, it's tough because it's really changed over the years. You know, before it just used to be, um, you know, like be be good writer, submit to site. Um, but the the media landscapes kind of really evolved over the past you know decade of of, of magic that I've just been producing content in. Um, you know, I'm I'm not a video personality. I'm not a I'm not a video focused kind of person. Um, you know, I, I've made my attempts, but um, it's not it's not my strong suit. It's something I had to put a lot of practice into. So the kind of the the, the two big things that I would say is one is just don't stop practicing. You know, whatever whatever you're trying to craft, you're trying to be a writer. You should be writing every day. You should be reading good writers. You should be looking for for constant improvement, which is what you should be doing in anything you want to be good at. Right? You just have to put the reps in, even if nobody's watching. That's that's the discipline it takes to become good at your craft. And then the second is, um, you know, honestly finding finding ways to build an audience. You know, are you are you witty? Do you do you know, do you have ways of, of kind of leveraging that? You know, are you engaged in the Twitter community? Are you engaged in discords or, or big popular communities or forums? Being that kind of person where you provide, you, you need to find the ways that you can amplify your own voice. Um, and honestly, that's the most powerful way of attracting an audience where if you become someone who is renowned for their wit, who does, produces great work, uh, when no one's looking, if if you deliver a great experience uh, to to a community, you're going to find people who find value in that, uh, and the opportunities will also come your way. And that's probably the most powerful way to attract, right? Is is ultimately the end game is to build an audience. And you see this with YouTube content producers and streamers. And it's a very classic kind of story, and it does get harder. Uh, and the media landscape's continuing to change. You know, there's no secret sauce other than do do the very best work that you can. Keep making it better. But honestly, you've got to give yourself every opportunity to be in the right space. And I did. I saw something actually today about on Twitter about just there. There is a slight element of luck, like kind of a right place, right time. But everything you said, if you're doing that, that kind of little luck element of being in the right place, at the right time, somebody will notice you potentially, and you might get that little break, right? Right. It's it's. I think the important thing to remember is that is that it's there, just like a game of magic, there are the things you control, right? You don't control what what card you draw next, uh, brainstorm aside. Uh, you don't control what, um, what, what randomization happens to your deck. If you're going to be a little bit landlight, if you're going to be a little bit flooded, you do control your resources, the decisions you make when you encounter them, what you do with the opportunities within the game, you know, how you stick to your game plan. Focusing on the things that you can control, which is the quality of your work, your ability to improve it, your willingness to engage with uh, with an audience and and existing creators, and a willingness to to be part of the community that you want to be a representative of, I think are things that you can control and and take advantage of, and they open the door for a company to notice something or a or an opportunity for a community manager position to open. Or the opportunity for uh, you know a third party who's looking for talent at the last minute, who needs somebody that's done casting before. You know whatever your craft is, if you become good at it and 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 make the opportunities, you you get there, right? You have to craft the opportunity for the opportunity to even be there. Yeah, yeah. that's some that's a really great advice though. And if anyone out there who is listening, seriously, like I'm sure. Adam, you'd be more than welcome to field questions from people if they did want to reach out and be like, hey, I had this question about how that kind of thing. You'd be more than welcome to field some kind of, you know, aspiring writer question from somebody out there. I, I, I'd be welcome to offer the best advice I could. 
Now, speaking of coverage, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the story of last weekend. I'm a, were you at Mythic Championship in Cleveland? I, I was. Uh, I was all, I was part of the coverage team behind the scenes working on feature matches, uh, the metagame breakdown, kind of the general general flow of information to to different different aspects online and within the the video broadcast. So, as the weekend moved on and as we saw kind of the storylines develop, um, was there any point where it was clear that it would be like one person's mythic championship to lose or did that did everything kind of just develop naturally once the top eight was formed um you know the it's it's really interesting so being on the ground at an event when you're behind the scenes and you're not watching the broadcast and you're not watching the the matches the match results and and kind of the the general narrative that's happening online it can be actually a little hard to see what's going on right um because i'm not i'm not watching all the matches i'm not broadcasting i'm looking ahead to the next round i'm trying to identify you know what what we need to have happen next uh working on things behind the scenes that you know uh that, that need to be copy edited or or provided to a producer uh to get online um so it's a little bit different of a flow and i'm a little bit um a little bit kind of walled off from a lot of the the narrative of the tournament uh what was really cool was going into round 16 at the end of the, the end of the last day, it, you know, looking at the tiebreaker math and looking at the only other person who could get 37 points being six percentage points off on tiebreakers, which is a mathematical impossibility to make up even in the last round. Um, you know, it was pretty clear that it was going to be that, that it could potentially be a very safe top eight where everybody could just draw in. And, and that was ended up what ha- what happened. Um, so it was really um, kind of interesting to see every, the top eight kind of come together you know, around before you typically have it come together, right? That that was kind of one thing that stood out. Um, the other was that as the tournament progressed, uh, the feature matches would go very quickly, um, but there were other tables that were taking much longer. Um, and, and the real story was just that the that the slower, you know, Nexus decks, the slower mid-range decks had mostly fallen to the lower tables, uh, and it was, they were running a little bit slower, and, and really it was going to be... Um, it, it was Agro's tournament to lose. You know, three mono blue decks in the top eight. It wasn't an accident that that was kind of the the kind of the sword for the weekend. Um, so it was just really interesting to you know to see who was going to come out of the quarterfinals. Um, so whereas we, we we the viewer got to see like the the tournament develop and paper like on the the battlefield, you were seeing it develop through statistics. Yeah, the flow of the tournament. You know why. You know, why are the bottom tables always still out, but all the top tables are done halfway through the round? Well, you start to understand the composition of who's playing what and why that's the case. That's pretty cool. I I, so, I know John I per- love statistics and stuff. That sounds like something that'd be really kind of cool to actually get to see. So Yeah. Now, I said this during the top four after the quarterfinals were done, that this top four was very difficult from a rooter's perspective, because you can make a good argument to root for any one of those four top four top four contenders. Um, when you were when you were watching the top eight, did that kind of feel similar to you when you were kind of watching it unfold and before our eyes? Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of people I really like. Um, you know, I was really pulling for um, Alex Mazelton. I think if he had made it out of his quarterfinal match, he would have had a pretty good matchup against the rest of the decks. Um, you know, I you know I'm a big fan of, of Reed Duke. I think he's one of the the genuine most genuine people I've had a chance to meet as a player. Um, and just seeing his approach again to 
you know, I I was at the the players uh, the players championship it was called at the time, and I think he went one in fifteen. You know, it was very famously did not do very well, and just really not just took it in stride, but but took it in the most constructive way I think I've seen a player take that kind of um, lack of success, and and that was a lot of fun to see. You know, I'm a big fan of um, Autumn Burchett and how they they were playing all weekend, uh, how they came prepared, how they were ready. Uh, for for the, for the field, and they were an expert at, at that deck. Um, so it was it was really really you know it was historic for LSV with ten top eights. Um, just the the quality of the top eight was outstanding, and I think the matches that led up led up into and including the finals showed it. Yeah. So again, looking at again, sorry to keep on this event, but you know, with Autumn winning Mythic Championship Cleveland, the, the first Mythic Championship of the year, and the first one that's been branded as such from beginning to end. What does that mean for Magic? I mean, I think I think it's good. Uh, I mean, uh, the you know there there's always somebody on Reddit that pulls kind of viewership metrics from the outside and, and what's being measured, and it was just massive. You know, I think some some crazy number of people were watching over the weekend. Um, you know, big numbers being put out. the The ability for Arena to you know propel Magic forward, I think, was demonstrated this weekend. You know, all of the all of the for a mature metagame, there was a lot of interplay. Everyone that was at the top tables was an expert at their deck and made some incredibly savvy plays that you know people were weren't able to see because they simply were that good at what they were playing. Um, I think th- I think the future of, of Magic and the Mythic Championships is awesome. You know, if we continue to have great experience at formats, if we continue to have players that are very very good and and have put in much more repetition with their decks than than otherwise was available in the past, I think Magic's just going to continue to look look that good or better. So seeing, it's like what you're saying there is having it kind of later in the season as opposed to being like almost the week after a set release kind of thing. It's just, it's actually, you, you think it's better for the game. I think it can be. Um, you know, this is a really interesting, fun standard format where there's clearly a lot of different decks with, with range and an opportunity to kind of build the different metagames and different tools. I would love to see. Um, I'm kind of curious to see what happens with the next, you know, the next Mythic Championship, where everyone's drafting the set for probably the, you know, probably you know maybe the twentieth time. You know, I, I think uh, War of the Sparks gonna be released early on Magic Online and, and Magic Arena. You know, like a week and a half or a week before pre-release, but there isn't going to be the depth of draft experience that we've seen, and so you're gonna see. You know who who's able to adapt to the format better? Who's able to find the edges? Who 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 got in a couple extra reps to be experienced in the draft portion? And everybody can start testing now for modern. You know, there's no yeah. there's no tar changes, and modern with being such an open format, um, it's going to be really exciting to see. You know, is there going to be another Grixis Death Shadow type deck that kind of comes out of comes out as a as a dark horse and turns out somebody found a new way to break the format? Um, you know. So you're looking forward to see the percentage points people are going to probably pick up later in the tour, you know, to propel themselves in the tournament in that draft portion itself kind of thing where, yeah, we, we, modern's going to be well known, but where the sparks to be like, Hey, you've had like a week go. Yep. You know, I, I love those, those experiences. I mean, obviously I, I have a cube. I love limited, you know, I, I think sealed is my favorite way to play magic just because it's a, it's like a, a puzzle meets magic every time. But um, how, how players kind of tackle, effectively a brand new draft format that there really is only a limited amount of time to, to practice for um, is going to be super interesting. All right. So to kind of 
wind us down. You're one of the few people, Adam, who has played in both the Community Cup and the pre-pre-release. Do you have any favorite memories from one or either that you would like to share? I I never thought of it that way. (laughs) I did not realize that fact. Um, You're probably like one of maybe like three or four. Like I know Jimmy for sure is one, and you have James who's done it, Graham who's done it. Kenji. Uh, Kenji's Kenji, Marshall, yeah. yeah, that's a little bit bigger than me, um, for sure. Yeah, it's, but it's no, but, you, but there's still a hand. There's a small <laughs> number. You're you're a small, very small percentage, and like that. The overlap of... is there, but it's not. It's not just you, right? Yeah. So, so my favorite memory from from either one has to be going out for breakfast uh, for the for uh, I think it was the before before after the 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 pre pre release. And there's this restaurant that's kind of fake Americana in Victoria, Canada, and they have a they have a meal where it's like sixteen bucks and it's like whatever the kitchen makes, uh, and basically you can bet double or nothing on a coin toss to to either pay double or pay nothing for it, and winning the coin toss and basically getting a free whatever the kitchen wanted to make was uh, was fun. Oh man, I I I'm blanking on the name of that restaurant. I know which one you're talking about too. Yeah, I've been up there a couple times to help them out with desert bus and stuff like that, and I see them mention, "We all gotta go out to breakfast," and it's like this scramble or whatever. Yeah, so I, I've seen some, you know, I've seen some some of my friends take you know very mercenary take on. It's like, oh, everybody loves this. You know, the kitchen gets to use ingredients that they need to use up, and you feel like you have a good time. And I'm like, I, I just like gambling on food because I'll eat anything, and it was just a lot of fun to be like, well, one, I don't know what they're gonna make, but two, I don't have, you know. James doesn't have to pay for it anyway. You know, it was it was just it was just let's go for it. It was fun. So so ha- so with the whole coverage thing and this this gambling thing, I gotta ask: Do you play the credit card game? Yeah, I play the credit card game. Uh, I am I am up very much a lifetime. <laughs> so for those who but, don't know, the credit card but, game is the one where basically <laughs> you can opt in, put your credit card in a pile, and they'll go around the table, pick out cards. You know. And whoever gets stuck at the end, you either pick the person whose card is picked either pays or is safe. So one person could end up paying like $400 for like a $20 cheeseburger. That's bad. That's bad. It's a win-win. Either you get free lunch or you bought your friend's lunch. It's a win-win. Yeah, I, I do have a personal role. So some people aren't aren't a big fan of that because, you know, everybody's expenses and cash flow and everything's a little bit different. Um, I typically... I, I will only play the credit card game if I would be comfortable just paying for the whole meal for everyone any, anyway. You know, if, if I'm happy, if everyone accidentally forgot their wallet simultaneously, I would not feel bad if I just picked up the check and said, let's, you know, let's, let's not worry about it. Let's have a great time. Uh, yeah, so so that's the only way I lose is, you know, by paying for a meal I probably would have paid for anyway if push came to shove. That's cool. Gotcha. So don't, remember, kids, so, don't gamble too much. <laughs> <laughs> Just exactly. do it. Just do so, it smart. Yeah, be smart. Just like just like all magic players are, most of the time. So, Adam, thank you again so much for coming on. If people wanted to get in touch with you, what are the avenues that they can do to do so? Well, I'm I'm the underscore Stibs S T Y B S on Twitter. Um, so you know you'll you'll find me if you search Stiborski. I'm sure I'll pop right up or Stibs. Uh, thepoppercube.com, all one word, the popper cube is where you can learn more about the popper cube and a lot of the things that go into that. I've got a blog, I post the updates, uh, there's a Patreon for the cube, so if you decide the cube's something you want to build and, and you want to support, uh, or, or even get the cards you just need delivered in the mail, that's kind of one of the reward tiers that, 
that I have, um, you know, there's a really active community, um, and, I, and I definitely have to give a shout out to to the awesome community that has come together around the queue because they do a lot more talking than I do in the Discord for it, uh, and talk a lot about other cubes and magic in general, and they they're a really really good group over there. So a lot of fun um, being part of that community on, on the poppercube.com. And we also will ha- we'll have all the links to these down in our show notes if you guys want to head easy way to click on them. We're also going to have there, Adam, your Cool Stuff Inc. archive, the TCG Player archive, and your Mothership archive for all the articles you've been uh, tagged on those uh, websites. It's been, it's been a long time. I started writing for Wizards of the Coast in November 2009. My first article went up. Uh, so this is going to be my 10 years anniversary question mark i guess of writing for them yeah congrats yes do you have a favorite article you've written oh man (laughs) (laughs) all right put we put you two on the spot you can answer that later Um, (laughs) i i I do have a favorite article i've written but nobody except for kelly diggs has gotten to read it uh so so lorthos the tide maker has a has a place near and dear to my heart, rest in peace, my my bulbous overlord. <laughs> so the very first card I got to see under uh, an NDA with Wizards of the Coast was Lorthos, uh, and I the the first basically the the, the training slash spec piece or, or piece that was meant to be meant to go up to introduce me as the new writer for Serious Fun because um, Kelly was looking to to pick up you know to replace the slot so we could continue focusing on the editing and kind of management side of Daily MTG was a preview article for Loth- Lorthos and it was just a lot of fun just to to be totally into you know getting to talk about this card and and how awesome it is and why it's exciting and cool and why you would want to use it and how you could use it um, but it's just you know it's there in my inbox somewhere and Kelly had it and it never got read beyond that but it was uh it was a lot of fun to write oh that's fantastic so well again well, Adam thank you thank you so very much for coming on the show this week we really do appreciate it yeah thank you it's it's been awesome Ian, if people wanted to get in touch with you on social media, where could they do so? Hey, you guys can find me on Twitter at DixonIJ. That's D-I-X-O-N-I-J. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Dix. I'm not going to be playing in that Pro Tour, but I'm going to be playing a bunch of Modern coming up. So kind of ties in nicely a little bit what we're talking about there. So, John, where can they find you? You guys can find me on Twitter at jwiley129. That's J-W-I-L-E-Y-129. You can also find me on Twitch at the same handle, so if you see me floating around the chat room, don't hesitate to say hi. If you want to reach the podcast directly, you can do so in one of two ways. You can hit us up on Twitter at Eyes and the Mize, or if you have a more personal question, you can shoot us an email at eyesandthemize at gmail.com. That way we can best we can learn how we can best improve the podcast for you, our lovely listeners. On behalf of Adam and on behalf of Ian, thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next time. <laughs>